welcome Rebecca Hensler. She's an activist, educator, counselor, and founder of the Grief Beyond Belief Network, a community of comfort and compassion free of religion, spiritualism, and pseudoscience. Ms. Hensler majored in political activism at Brown University and earned her master's degree in counseling at San Francisco State. So now I'm going to turn the screen over to Ms. Hensler. Um, thank you very much, and your, the screen is all yours. Thank you so much. And I'm actually not going to be using any slides or anything. I'm just going to be talking today. Um, I appreciate the lovely introduction. So usually when I speak, it feels like the way to start is with my own experience of grief and how I came to founding Grief Beyond Belief. And then I'll talk a little bit about um, what I've learned since founding it and what I've learned about what people who are non-believers uh, find comforting in their grief. And I'll answer questions at the end. So hold on to your questions. Um, so my story, of grief really begins about 30 years ago. Um, when I was in my late teens and early 20s, I uh, came out into a LGBTQ community that was just absolutely overwhelmed with loss. Um, at the time, it was really the height of the AIDS epidemic and if you were part of the community as I was, people you knew were dying all the time. And it was just this immense amount of loss, both that we experienced as individuals and that we experienced as a community. And my memory of that time is really of not grieving, but of how much we turned our loss and our grief into anger and political action. And there's a lot to be said for that. If we hadn't done that at the time, I mean, there are changes that were made in laws and regulations that had an impact on our current epidemic. Um, we accomplished a lot as AIDS activists because we took that loss and grief and let it become actions to save people's lives. And it was very powerful. But what it meant was that we really didn't ever let ourselves really feel the grief we were experiencing. Obviously, eventually the epidemic became um, not as bad as it was at that time because, you know, uh, treatments, successful treatments were developed. Um, and, but by that time I had gotten into counseling. Um, I had become an HIV test counselor, which at the time often meant that you were basically giving people death sentences because when I was an HIV counselor, um, I was giving their test results, but for many people, um, you know, the, there was a lack of treatment, there were a lack of resources. It was a very terrible time. Um, and I 
relatively quickly came to realize that I wanted to be able to help people at a younger age, um, which is how I ended up going back to school and becoming a middle school counselor. Um, so I, around the age of 30, uh, became a licensed a master's in counseling and a counselor in middle school. Um, one of the things I knew that I wanted very badly in my own life was to have children. Um, but I had been actually informed by a doctor uh, in my late 30s that I was not going to be able to get pregnant, uh, or at least not without thousands and thousands of dollars in uh, fertility care. And so um, I was actually uh, really delighted when I was able to get pregnant. Um, and, uh, you know, if I had been a religious believer, people would have been like, oh, it's a miracle. Um, it wasn't a miracle. Um, some things changed in terms of my health, and I was able to get pregnant. And um, I was really happy with that. Only a few weeks after I found out I was pregnant, I found out my son um, was developing in utero with a really terrible birth defect. Um, and that birth defect's called uh, congenital diaphragmatic hernia. He was developing with a hole in the muscle between the chest cavity and the abdominal cavity. Um, and what happens with babies with this birth defect is that their abdominal uh, organs can migrate into the chest cavity, which then push the heart and the lungs over and can result in um, heart and lung defects, which is what happened to him. It also results in um, the lungs being underformed. Um, but Again, not a miracle, but I uh, did have very good health insurance because I have a great union as a school counselor. And um, we decided to give our son the best chance we could. Um, we knew that, you know, he would be born very sick, that he, we were told he had a one in 10 chance of living. Um, he was born actually, uh, this week in 2009, he was born on June 9th. And um, Jude, our son, was beautiful. Uh, he had blue eyes and red hair like me. And um, he was really affectionate. He liked to hold our fingers. He liked to hold anyone's fingers. It would be like his nurse, his grandparents, me, my wife. He just wanted to hold on to you. Um, and he was really smart. You could tell he was just kind of absorbing everything. Um, and he, he was fussy and he had things he liked and didn't like. You know, he liked particular poems. He liked particular, he loved early Pink Floyd music. I mean, it was hilarious because he, he was just this really unique little guy. Um, and he was just kind of developing that sense of, of cause and effect, like figuring out that if he hit his mobile, he could make it swing um, in the last few weeks of his life. Um, his lungs did not develop to keep up with the rest of his body. 
and so um, our son died uh, when he was 90 days old in my arms. And that's sort of where this all starts, right? I was in a lot of pain for a long time. Um, grief is very strange. Those first weeks, I was like, oh, I can handle this. But a few months later, um, you know, I was really struggling. Um, and I started reaching out for support. And I discovered that there was this thing called online grief support. And it had never really even occurred to me that there was such a thing. Um, there's an organization called the Compassion friends and they've been around 60 years obviously they haven't been online 60 years but by um 2009 when i was sort of in the depths of my grief they had a really strong online uh on facebook presence um where basically any time of day or night you could go to their facebook page and post about what you were going through and someone would respond with some kind of comfort. And it was amazing. Um, it, you know, because grief doesn't pick and choose its time. Sometimes it's one in the morning when you can't stop crying and being able to reach out to people who, because Compassionate Friends is specifically for people who have lost their own child or a grandchild or a sibling. And so being able to connect with people who I had this in common with, who had mostly also lost their children, was really, really helpful to me. At the same time, it was incredibly alienating because so much of the comfort was offered in a way that was not comforting to me. It was not comforting to me to be told your baby's in heaven. It was not comforting to me to be told his spirit's all around you. Um, it was really hard when I wanted to offer comfort to have people be reaching out by saying, um, my son died and he really liked butterflies and I saw a butterfly today and do you think it was a sign from him? And you know, and then there would be 50 people commenting, yes, of course, it's a sign from him. And it was really hard for me to be that skeptical person who was like, once I'd seen enough of these posts, I'm like, oh, pretty much anything is a sign to these people. This isn't like their son who died sending them a message. This is their brain their human pattern matching brain, seeing anything and saying, that's a sign from my child. Um, and it just, it was alienating. It, it felt isolating. Um, periodically, I would talk about how I was grieving differently. And once in a while, that let me connect with someone else who was experiencing the same thing. I met a man named Cliff Schrager, who 
was part of Compassionate Friends because he, um, two of his sons had died in a terrible car crash, his teenage sons. Um, and he was really in the depths of his grief. Um, he had been a, a evangelical pastor. He was had been very religious. Um, and, you know, an important part of his evangelical community um, before his sons died. He'd always had some questions in the back of his mind. But after his sons died, um, he really stopped believing. And so not only did it help me to connect with him because it was like, oh, someone else who doesn't have, isn't grieving with these faith beliefs. Um, I also started learning that as hard and as alienating as it was for me to be grieving differently from other people in this grief support community, it was 10 times, no, unmeasurable number of times worse for him because it wasn't just that there were people around him who were offering him comfort that wasn't comforting. Um, he was experiencing trauma that was being caused by people who were critical of his non-belief. Um, it was so bad that I literally saw someone on his Facebook page tell him that um, his sons had died. God had taken his sons so that they would not witness their father's apostasy. Um, and this was obviously causing him this intense trauma. So at the same time, I, and I, I started reading what people were writing online, people in the secular community about grief without faith, um, and really started seeing, wait a second, this isn't just me sitting here thinking, God, it would be nice to have something like Compassionate Friends online that was specifically for non-believers. This was like this vast community or population of people grieving without faith whose needs were not being met by conventional grief support. Um, it, you know, and some of those needs went beyond the grief needs to needing support for the trauma being inflicted on them the way it was on Cliff. Um, and so I started as as I do thinking, well, what could I do about this? And first I was just like, huh, well, Compassionate Friends has this Facebook page. I could start a Facebook page for parents who are grieving um, without religious beliefs. Um, and I talked to um, a friend of mine about it and she, who's also in the secular world. And she was like, um, Rebecca, it's not just grieving parents. It's like, this is a thing that is needed. Um, and I spent about a year kind of hoping someone, one of these other people who was writing about this and thinking about this, you know, just hoping someone else was just going to step up and start this thing. It was not my goal in life to, you know, be the founder of Secular Grief Support. Um, I just kind of felt like there was something I needed that I wasn't getting. And things were getting 
been kind of harder at compassionate friends for me. I mean, I'm never going to forget the night where this one particular woman who was grieving for her own adult daughter who had died said, oh, I'm sure that my daughter who died is holding your baby in heaven until you get there. Um, and all I could think was, um, considering the neonatal death rate in the world today, the odds that your daughter is holding my baby, and I mean, even if this was true, why would your daughter be holding my baby instead of one of the other like thousands of babies who have died recently? Um, and so I just, the cognitive dissonance was becoming a real struggle for me. And the thing about comfort, if you think about the word comfortable and divide it up, what you really get is able to be comforted. And cognitive dissonance is not a really a state in which one is able to be comforted when you're feeling so, um, just so off and misunderstood all the time. And so I really did start thinking maybe I'm the one who needs to make this happen. I'm an inpatient person. That's what it comes down to. And when no one else seemed to be doing anything about making uh, secular grief support happen, I just started thinking, okay, so what's this going to take? It's going to be a Facebook page. That's the easiest way to do this. What will I need? Well, I'll need people who will let other people know that this exists. And luckily, I had a lot of contacts um, in the world of secular blogs and secular media. Um, and, um, and I started thinking, well, we're going to need some rules. What would the rules have to be? Um, so on, oh my God, is this exactly, that was funny. Oh my God. Um, 10 years ago on June 19th, um, I founded Grief Beyond Belief as a Facebook page. And seriously, even though I put out the word, I put out a little press release to all these bloggers, and I knew there were a lot of people who were going to blog about it the day we went live. Um, I honestly thought 50 people would join, you know, eventually. I, you know, I didn't. So when within a couple days there were a hundred people on the page and they'd already started posting about their own grief and posting things in support of each other i was just sort of amazed and when within a week a thousand people had joined <sighs> yeah i was overwhelmed by how much unmet need there was out there for secular grief support. Um, and I very quickly began learning because this was, you know, I didn't have any experience in this. I'd run, I'd run a grief group for high school students when I was a counseling intern. I'd done a little reading about grief, but grief was not, you know, my wheelhouse at the time. 
Um, and so it was really a learning experience for me. I, one, I very quickly found out that uh, we were going to have to be incredibly clear about what we were there for and what we were about, because it turned out that not only was there this incredible need for grief support for people who had no belief in a God or, or an afterlife in terms of religion, there were also a lot of people who had sort of alternative spiritual beliefs who were also seeking support and said, is this for us too? So the first decision I had to make with the community, the first thing that, and this is how I started this process of getting community input for our conditions of participation, the first thing I had to do was say, you know, do you guys want this to just be for people who are grieving with no afterlife or higher power belief, or should this be open to people with alternative spiritualities? And overwhelmingly, people said, no, we really need a place to grieve where it is just people, it is just about grieving without an afterlife belief at all. Um, and so that was the first big decision I had to make. Um, and I've never regretted it. And we've never changed it, even when there have been people, you know, who've said, well, this is narrow minded of you. We've had to say over and over, there's, you know, hundreds of places on the internet to grieve with spiritual beliefs. This is literally the only place to grieve if you have no afterlife belief and no higher power, not, no belief in anything supernatural or pseudoscience. This is the only place we're going to keep it this way. Um, and so that was one of the first things I learned. But I also started learning about, about grief without faith and about what people were struggling with. And even more than that, what people were finding comforting. That was a very powerful thing to start seeing these patterns of what was comforting to non-believers and to start kind of, you know, writing down and thinking about it because no one else was really putting that information together. You know, even a few years ago, I was participating in a panel discussion and her, with other atheists and heard someone who's actually, I'm not going to name who it is, um, but someone who's a real later, leader in the atheist community on the national level saying, well, there's really, you know, the thing about grieving as an atheist is there is no comfort. And I was like, um... I'm not just going to let that stand because that is not what I've seen in our community. What I've seen in our community at Grief Beyond Belief is that there is comfort. And, you know, it's that we're not handed comfort sort of on a platter. We're not handed meaning. We're not handed you know, there's a reason for everything. That's this very common idea among um, believers of all kinds is that there's this reason for everything. And 
you know, obviously, if, if you're thinking there is a reason for everything, it's physics and biology and, and chance. I mean, of course, there are reasons for everything, but there isn't someone with a plan. And I find that more reassuring than distressing. I mean, if you think about it this way, you know, like I would used to hear from believers all the time, you know, well, God has a plan, you know, it's like, but you'd also hear, oh, I'm so sorry your sick baby died. God needed another angel. But then like, if their kid lived, it's like, oh, my sick baby lived. God answered my prayers. Okay. So if God has a plan, like, if I could get a look at that plan, if sick babies is anywhere in your plan, that's not a very good plan to my mind. And so <laughs> I never found this idea that there was someone with a plan and that their plan included my baby being born with a terrible birth defect. Um, I never found that very comforting. Um, but, you know, you can see that for many believers, there really is this way that their faith allows them to be kind of handed meaning and comfort, ready-made. And that's not something that I've ever seen in our community. No one's handing us meaning. And meaning-making is a very important part of processing grief. Um, there's, um, I mean, there's all kinds of research on grief, and I'm not going to go deep into research on grief, but one of the theories does include this idea that there are sort of certain tasks that one does when one is grieving. Um, and, you know, that those include accepting the death as final, which is something that I think that we as non-believers actually um, not find easier, but is more natural to us to accept a death as final and, and total. Um, but one of the final tasks of grieving is making meaning of your loss. And if you're not handed the meaning, that does mean that you have to really come up with it yourself. Um, you know, the thing about grief is not very few people spend their whole lives grieving. A lot of the time we're kind of walking forward through life and we suffer a loss and it's like a chasm opens up under our feet and you know you might crank your feet a little like wily e. coyote style so that you don't fall and that's that process of your brain trying to like refuse to accept the loss or to accept that the loss is complete and final but you do fall eventually and you kind of fall deep into this pit of grief and the thing about religion is it kind of offers this rope. The thing about like having a afterlife belief, particularly a belief in some kind of reunification with someone who's died, is they kind of grab the rope and it keeps you from hitting the bottom of that pit. 
And the thing about grieving when you're a non-believer is that you don't have that rope. Or if you spent your whole life believing and then you lose that faith belief, the, the rope, you slip off of it. But either way, you're going to fall to the bottom of that pit. And we don't have anything to offer that keeps you from falling into that pit. What we really have in Grief Beyond Belief is kind of offering each other kind of like this is where you find the ramp up out of the pit. This is, this is where you might find a ladder to get up out of this pit and to start walking forward in your life again. And it's not that everything's better and it's not that you're moving on and, and leaving it all behind. It's that we learn to live with grief. And we at Grief Beyond Belief have really learned a lot and teach each other a lot about how to live with our grief. Um, and that can mean a lot of different things. One of the things that means is that, you know, people who have just suffered a loss often really experience, um, what am I trying to say? when we've just suffered a loss, we experience our brain trying to keep us from feeling the intensity of the pain. Um, and so sometimes that involves some really weird stuff in your brain. That can, that's why when someone has just died, um, you start seeing them everywhere. And if you're a believer, that might translate into a belief that you're seeing that person's spirit. But in fact, if you're not a believer, you might feel like, wow, what is wrong with me? I don't think that this person's still alive, yet I keep seeing them out of the corner of my eye. And so when you're with other people who are grieving in a way that is skeptical, we're able to offer each other explanations. We're able to say, actually, that's really normal. You're not losing your mind. You're not sick. You know, you're grieving. And that is something your brain does to kind of protect itself from the loss. We're also able to just help each other understand the strange things you do in the depths of grief. Um, so yesterday in Grief Beyond Belief, um, in the community, we we're just having a conversation. Someone was talking about saving, oh God, they were talking about saving their loved one's dirty clothes and how they felt like what the heck am I doing? I am literally saving dirty clothes. I am the and and then they but they said, is anyone else saving something kind of weird? And I was like, um, I literally saved my pregnancy test. Yes, it's a stick that I peed on, but it's like one of the last things of Jude. It, that survives is this thing that told me that he existed. <laughs> and so that's comforting to each other to know, 
know that we're all doing things that otherwise might seem, you know, out of the range of normal behavior. Um, the things we do to protect ourselves, like, you know, we were talking, someone was mentioning in Grief Beyond Belief about avoiding the baby idol, aisle, baby aisle in the pharmacy. And I'm like, yeah, I did that for months and months and months. That isn't abnormal. Um, and so some of those sharing some of those ideas is, you know, that can be really comforting so that people understand it's not just them. Um, we also, you know, started learning about how much storytelling mattered. And once you realize that giving people an opportunity to tell stories about their loved ones is really important, um, you start seeing, oh, gosh, that's really hard on people whose, you know, uh, whose baby died because there are so few stories. And, you know, for people who are grieving miscarriages, it's even worse. There's like no real story. But learning things like you know, everyone named their child or thought about names. And just like learning what are things that you can ask someone the story of, that if a woman, if anyone is grieving the death of their baby, asking her about their baby's, her baby's name and, you know, um, and how 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 they came up with their baby's name is really you know can be very comforting um you know and so we just started learning what helped um the other thing that happened with grief beyond belief is it grew and it grew and it grew um we eventually started a um a website because i was on the regular publishing links to research about grief, people writing about secular grief, both people writing about grief that was specifically about grieving as atheists and other non-believers, but also people writing about grief in a way that was just neutral and didn't mention faith beliefs. Um, and so I was collecting, as I posted these links on the Facebook page, um, that was really building up and building up. And so um, we have a uh, website that has a blog that's posted in intermittently, but also the world's largest library of links that are about grief and loss that have no religious or spiritual content whatsoever. And that's at griefbeyondbelief.org. Um, Facebook changed their page platform to make it less, less interactive. And at that point, um, we founded a closed confidential Facebook group. One of the things that had happened while Facebook, while Grief Beyond Belief was growing was that um, it was kind of taking over my life, um, which I discovered when a year later, I finally needed to take a vacation. And I said, um, I need to take a break. I'm not going to be able to be monitoring this page. I'm going to be driving all over southern Italy. Um, and a woman named Nita Jane Grayson um, popped up and said, hey, 
I am a moderator at another um, online group. So I have moderation experience. Would you like me to take over for a couple of weeks? And I was like, oh my goodness, I don't have to do this alone. And um, Nita became one of my closest friends, even though we've never met and she lives in Australia. Um, and she became my co-moderator. And so she and I were the ones who founded the Confidential Grief Beyond Belief group. And that is where people at this time are, you know, both seeking and offering each other peer-to-peer -peer grief support. Um, the group has over 6,000 members at this time. And it's hard. It's not easy. The larger it gets, the more, you know, more frequently something goes wrong. People get frustrated with each other. Grieving people are both incredibly fragile themselves and also not always that great about being able to figure out whether something they say is going to be hurtful to someone else. And so it takes a lot of work to moderate and, and, you know, administrate a grief support community. Um, we also, you know, have a extensive process for making sure that everyone who joins the group is a good match for the group. Um, and that doesn't mean they have to be a particular kind of person. We don't have like politics you have to have or anything like that. Literally, it's just a matter of are you grieving without belief in any kind of afterlife or higher power um, for a human loved one. Uh, one of the other things that came up as a controversy was, was a grief beyond belief group, a place to talk about people's grief for their pets. And after hundreds of items of community input and lots of thinking, um, as I was uh, mentioning right before we started this meeting, I had to write a policy that was did not make anyone happy. That was sort of a policy about whether or not you could talk about uh, pets. What we ended up coming up with was you in the main group, you could talk about your pet if it was in relation to your grief for a human loved one. But we also have a pet support group. Um, we also have a group specifically for people who are grieving parents because grieving parents tend to feel like it's not that our grief is worse. We don't compare griefs in grief beyond belief, but it is different. And so we need a space where we could talk specifically with each other. Um, but I mean, that's the amazing thing is that this community just got bigger and bigger. Um, and, you know, people started stepping up. Um, so there's been, you know, there's a team of people who do the work of, of vetting new members um, and moderating the group page. And it's been really incredible to see other people who are not necessarily people who are part of atheists or secular, you know, groups or communities, often they're people who are part of the secular population, not necessarily people who, you know, belong to an atheist group who said, no, this is work I want to do. Um, 
One of the very interesting things in Grief Beyond Belief is that it is one of the few secular communities that is predominantly female. Um, you know, although this has changed a lot in the last 10 years, certainly when Grief Beyond Belief started, um, so many atheist organizations were male dominated. And it was really interesting to see that this one organization, um, it was, you know, had way more female members than male members and way more female um, uh, volunteers. And so that's been a really interesting thing and an interesting dynamic. Um, there have been, you know, all kinds of struggles along the way. But it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience. And it's been a good experience for me in terms of my own grief. I talked a little earlier about meaning making. And the thing about grieving without religious beliefs is, you know, it is important to find a way to make a meaning out or make meaning out of your loss. Um, and one of the most comforting ideas to a lot of non-believers who are grieving a death is what I call the, the ripple theory. Um, it's basically the idea that if someone while they are living has an impact on another person, let's say teaches them something important. And that person who was taught decides, hey, you know, I could teach someone else this. And they teach someone else who teaches someone else who teaches someone else. Even after the original teacher has died, they still live on, not in some mystical, magical way, they live on in a very practical way in anything that happens in the world that would not have happened had they not lived. And so this comes all the way back to my son Jude. If Jude hadn't lived, grief beyond belief wouldn't exist. Maybe someone else would have started it. Um, and it would be different and it would be wonderful, I'm sure. But but grief beyond belief wouldn't exist as it is now had this little baby boy not lived for 90 days. And so even though he was tiny and even though his life was short, he's had an impact on thousands and thousands of people. And to me, no one can ever say his tiny little life was without consequence or his tiny little life only meant something to his family. This little guy changed the world just by being, um, and just by being as loved as he was and as missed as he was after he died. Um, and so to me, that's what I've learned from grief beyond belief more than anything else is that we can live, learn to live with our own grief um, and that we can help each other learn how to live with grief um, and that it is easier to live with grief together than 
in isolation. And I do have to say one of the things that has been hardest for people that I've observed in this past year is grief in isolation um, and the trauma that has been experienced in this past year. Um, and so the work has become harder, um, but it, you know, but having a team helps and, um, and having people like you all who say, hey, we'd actually like to learn a little more about this makes a difference too. Um, and one of the things that's been really great in the past three or four years has been that I've started having opportunity to talk to not just atheist and other non-believer groups about grief, but to talk to people who are doing professional grief work about how to serve our community better. Um, because that has been up until now entirely missing from the training and education that people who do professional grief work like hospice workers uh, and grief counselors while they learn plenty about this is how to serve the catholic population and this is how to serve jewish people and this is how to all the different faiths somehow we've been ignored and so I, having the opportunity to tell people who are going to be doing grief support this is what we need from you this is what my community is asking of you has been also very powerful um, and so the work goes on um, and uh, I really I sometimes think about what this means for me um, am I going to do this for the rest of my life? And one of the things that's been really amazing is seeing Grief Beyond Belief become a community and a team. It's not just me and my Facebook page and, you know, and nothing else. It's, it's become something that I think is sustainable and powerful for the secular world. Um, and that's about it. I'd like to take questions now. I'm going to look at chat, which I can never do while I'm talking. Um, Thank you so much. That was uh, such a, a wonder, uh, sad and wonderful story. I brought back a lot of memories for me because when the AIDS crisis hit, um, I served on the first AIDS crisis line here in Florida. And it was, it was, it was so hard because so many young men at that time, it was mostly young men calling, were kicked out of their homes and abandoned by their family. And, you know, that fortunately there were people who picked up the slack and, and gave them support, but I just can't. And that, what really got to me was when you said the woman who said, God's punishing you for you know, by taking your sons, basically is what you're saying. I, I just, I'm so appalled that anybody would would say that to someone. Yeah, I was I was honestly when I saw it, I was utterly shocked. And because it's different being told, hey, you don't really understand how bad it is grieving surrounded by believers uh, and seeing it like with my own eyes, like, oh my 
God, did someone really just say that? How yeah. would you say that to a grieving father? Yeah. Yeah, to anyone. I just can't even, right. so much for Christian charity and Christian compassion, but that's a different story. Um, so we'll open it up to questions. Um, I am glad to see that um, the community is growing. It's sad that it has to grow, but it's part of life. And we right. have to learn how to, to cope with a lot of that loss um, because it's not, it's not easy. Uh, but it's, I'm so glad that there is something there that, that, that there is someone there, some group there that can offer that. And Eileen, did you want to say something? <laughs> did I do that? Oh, I, I was just, I, I think of these things as, and, but I, I'm not very good at, at expressing things, you know, with, with, you know, shortly. But anyway, I, I, I'm Irish, uh, you know, Catholic from, that was my neighborhood. And we had the best wakes when people died. You know, that was the whole thing was get drunk. And then the worst comments would come out. So if somebody had said to me at a, at a, at a wake that this is God's punishment, I would have punched them out. <laughs> You know, because that's that's what we would have done if you know you have no anger is my first step when I when, when it comes to loss and um, anger and, and also you know it, it's I, so when I had to go to my my parents' funerals and wakes and they would always say oh they're in a better place and this and that and I was like oh, fuck you you know but I had a friend call me and said my father's last wishes was that I would return to the church. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, I had to hang up. And, and that's, like you say, you, anger works really well with grief because it's like, we need to get, you can't cry that much. So once in a blue moon, it's really good to get angry and then and then laugh at yourself afterwards. So that, that's, anyway, that's all I had to say. It's a stress relief. Just punch somebody. I would like to say that um, in the chat, um, Peggy Goodall has said that right-wing religious people often lead tortured lives and torture others. And that kind of reminds me when my father died and I was 10, the minister said that he was going to, he was burning in hell because he drank. Um, and I mean, who tells that to a 10 year old? Yeah. <laughs> And that's honestly the thing, right, is that while, you know, I think religious people think, well, how could you possibly get any comfort? How can anything be comforting if you're a non-believer? People forget that there are some real benefits from grieving with that. We do not experience that, you know, um, the, that struggle over is my loved one in heaven or is my loved one in hell um, and that's actually a real positive you know if you don't raise your kid with a hell belief they're never gonna worry that you know someone who died is in hell or that they're gonna go to hell um, and you know grieving it, it's not just that we don't have this you know, cognitive dissonance, we also just don't have these scary thoughts about what happens after you die. I mean, if you believe, as I do, that after you die, you're dead, your consciousness is over, you know, you never have to worry that 
you know, that, that someone who died is suffering um, or that, you know, you can be, and you can be aware, even if the death was a painful one, that there's no consciousness to be remembering and re-experiencing that pain, except those of us who are living. Right. And so, you know, I think that in some ways we have a real freedom from some very frightening ideas about death. Yes. And that's true with children too, you know. I mean, children, people tell children these euphemisms that they don't even realize can be terrifying. Like the whole telling children, oh, you know, the person who died went to sleep. There's actually plenty of evidence that a lot of children then get afraid to go to sleep themselves because they're afraid that if 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 the way that you know if what happened to their grandma is that they went to sleep and never woke up then they're scared that's gonna happen to them yeah. too so it does turn out that um being as honest as possible in language that a child can understand is often actually much better for kids um, Jim Peterson, you have a comment or a question? Yes, I do. Uh, well, I found your, your discussion to be uh, um, extremely um, provocative and interesting. Can't hear you, Jim. I say I, I found your, your, your uh, discussion to be extremely provocative and interesting. And uh, I, I think we're going to have a pretty good discussion out of all this. Um, but do you think that in the main, uh, the problem with our society and with most human societies, if not all, is our uh, reluctance and inability to accept the fact of our own mortality. We, we cannot, uh, that, that's why we have enormous social institutions like churches, for instance, in, in, in the first place, because they're supposed to be dealing with some of our more intimate personal problems and often they, uh, they, they simply substitute fantasies for those problems. Hmm. Um, so what do you think, what, what can we do uh, along with what you are doing, which I think substantially improves the prospects of people learning to accept the fact of their mortality? Uh, what else can we do? I think that's a complicated question because I think that we have to remember that we, uh, the, the culture that we live in is not a universal culture. You know, different cultures all over the world have different ideas about death and different ideas about um, what happens when you die and why people die. And I'm, it doesn't seem to me that you know, problems disappear when you have a more realistic, less faith-based idea about death. Um, I do think that, you know, we could have a much healthier attitude towards death than we do in our society. Um, I think that there could be more of a tendency to I think we could be better at accepting death as part of life basically um, and you know I also personally philosophically think that you know a humanist approach to living 
makes dying easier. Um, I was diagnosed just a couple years after my son died. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And I vividly remember when I first got that first tentative diagnosis. Um, and one of the first things I thought was, well, you know, I've accomplished a huge amount in life. I've done things, you know, at this point, I, I had already been a school counselor for 10 years. I'd had an impact on, you know, hundreds of children in various ways, big and small. Um, I had a very wild youth um, when I did all the things, like did a lot of just wild things, taking risks, doing things people told me not to do just because I could, uh, breaking rules because they were rules. And so having lived this life of having done a lot of things that gave me a lot of pleasure and were a lot of fun and having done a handful of things that I think would have a lasting impact on the world, it made it way easier to hear, we think you have a disease that might kill you. Um, and so I honestly think that a humanist approach to life where you say, this is the life you have, you got to make some good use of it. You got you to gotta do something with it that makes things better in some way for people, even after you're gone. And you got to have as much fun as you can and, you know, and, and cook good food and go interesting places and talk to interesting people. Um, you put all that together and it makes the idea of dying a lot easier to deal with. And so I do think that we could be healthier as a society, but I personally think a big part of that is helping people understand that if you if you made good use of your life then it's easier to let go of it 